starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blaspheme will be forgiven people, but the blaspheme against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either Make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart of the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Let's pray. 
Father, would you help us understand your word this morning? Would your word be an encouragement to us who are faint-hearted? Would it be a rebuke to us who are backslidden and living in sin? And would your word convict us and show us of your great love for those whose hearts are hard and who are blind to your love? We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we got some work to do. 23 verses. Have you ever wondered to yourself during an intensifying conversation when you should speak and when you shouldn't? Now, I know that there are probably some of you who are thinking to yourself, it's always a good time to speak. And there are others of you that are saying, if I could just grab my shell and just crawl in as far as I can, then I would do that. Well, Proverbs gives us a helpful answer. I mentioned this last week. Answer, not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer, a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What this proverb is saying is, there are times when you answer a fool, and you yourself look like a fool. And there are times to answer a fool, so that way he does not come across as wise. I wonder if you've noticed the past couple of years or so that there is an expectation for you to speak out on everything. If you don't speak out, then you're complacent and you're the problem. And if you do speak out, then you're doing so uninformed without all of the facts. What a proverb to understand for this time. It seems like the pressure only continues to escalate on social media platforms. Should I comment on this or not? Should I upload this article or not? Should I post this or should I leave it alone? You know, what this should cause us to do is marvel at the wisdom of Jesus that we're seeing today. We have seen Jesus know when to answer a fool and when not to. We have seen Him know when to answer and to challenge and when to not answer and to withdraw. This morning, what we're seeing is Jesus challenging the Pharisees. Because Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man, the Pharisees or, or the, the people start to think to themselves, is this, is this the guy? Is this the guy that we've been waiting for? Is this the son of David, the Messiah? Is this the one that we have longed for patiently for such a long, long time? And the Pharisees catch wind of this. And when the Pharisees catch wind of this, they explain it away. They call Jesus Beelzebul. They call Him the Prince of Demons. And they say the only way that He casts out demons is because He uses this evil power. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus challenges their ridiculousness. 
He shows where the holes are in their logic and He starts to challenge them. He warns them against blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Which then raises the question, how do we know then? And He then challenges them with their speech. He says, good fruit will produce good speech. And I don't think the Pharisees realizing that Jesus is talking to them, they then go ahead and ask a question. They ask, can we have another sign? (laughs) We just said that you do these signs by the prince of demons, but now we want a sign. And so Jesus, out of his mercy, says you will see one sign, and that's the sign of the prophet of Jonah. And so he challenges them that there will be only one sign that you need to understand who I am. And he finishes, or we finish then this section, with him challenging the crowds that there is no neutrality in this life. There is no neutrality. So here, As we're going through this passage, this is the main point, that Jesus is challenging the Pharisees about who He is. Jesus, we're going to see in four different ways, is challenging the Pharisees. In verses 22-32, through our first point, we're going to see that Jesus challenges the Pharisees, that He is the Son of David, that the Kingdom of God has come. In our second point, verses 33-37, through we will see that Jesus challenges the Pharisees that good fruit in a person's life produces good speech. In our third point, we see in verses 38-42, through Jesus challenging the Pharisees on the only sign that they need. And in our last point, verses 43-45, through Jesus challenges the the Pharisees, that there is no such thing as a neutral person towards Jesus. There is no neutrality. So let's go ahead and let's unpack this passage. If we look at our first point in verses 22 through 32, we see that the Pharisees are calling Jesus Belzebul. Now, they're calling Jesus Belzebul because of an interaction that happened a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of david so like when a a child mostly boys see a bug on the ground that fascinates them and they can't keep their eyes away from it and they follow it and they look at it intently, the people are starting to have their curiosity sparked. Their fascination with Jesus is growing and now they've gotten to a point asking the question, is this the Son of David? Is this the long-awaited Messiah? Is this the one who has come to establish the forever kingdom that we've been promised? The people are starting to imagine that Jesus quite possibly could be this king that they've been longing for. But the Pharisees catch wind of them saying this. 
And when they heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees refuse to accept that Jesus, the friend of tax collectors and sinners, is the son of David, the promised king. And because the Pharisees were the thought leaders of the day, they tried to explain away how it is that Jesus could possibly do these signs and wonders. By calling him the prince of demons and saying the only reason he has authority to cast out demons is because he is the prince of demons. And so as we move on in our text, we see how Jesus challenges the Pharisees. Believe it or not, honest Abe isn't the one who came up with this saying, Jesus is. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus is already poking holes in the Pharisees' logic. Nobody in their right mind thinks that a civil war in their country is a good thing. If there is division within your own country, that is not a good thing. I mean, come on, it would be like if Aaron Rodgers just started throwing interceptions on purpose because he says, well, we're pretty divided with within my team right now, and so I just decided I'd rather just throw interceptions. You'd say that there's major conflict going on. I mean, most every, most Packer fans would already say that there's conflict going on there, but you catch a drift. Division is not a good thing. No kingdom will advance if there's division. And so Jesus is pointing out this logic, and and Jesus goes on to say, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your Pharisees cast or, or your, your sons or disciples cast them out? Jesus is asking a very simple and plain question here. If I cause such havoc, if I'm wreaking such havoc, and if I'm making such great advancements and causing such damage to Satan's kingdom, and who do your disciples cast out demons? Where do your disciples get the power? This is why Jesus tells them, your disciples, your sons, will be your judges. The Pharisees want to bear false witness. They want to slander Christ's name. They want to drag His name through the mud all the while affirming that their disciples cast out demons in the Spirit. And so Jesus, as He continues to challenge the Pharisees, says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus casts out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here it is. 
The Pharisees are refusing to believe that the kingdom of God has come upon them. They're refusing to believe that Jesus is the Son of David. We saw in the passage above this that God's chosen servant who would come to take away the sins of the world would have the Spirit placed upon him. We saw earlier in the book of Matthew that as Jesus is baptized, He's fully submersed and lifted out of the water. The Spirit descends upon Him like a dove. We see that Jesus is this chosen King. We, we see that the kingdom has come upon. It's started. But how more specifically or tangibly can we see the kingdom happening? Jesus actually asks this same question to the Pharisees. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. As Jesus receives the Spirit at his baptism, what does the Spirit then prompt Jesus to do? The Spirit prompts Jesus to go into the wilderness to a waterless wasteland. To the prince of demons, Satan's himself, his house. And as Jesus is tempted in every way, he prevails. As Jesus is tempted in every way, He does not give in to temptation. He resists temptation. He binds up the strong man. He ties up His hands and feet. Jesus going into the desert and resisting temptation is Jesus going into the strong man's house, binding him up. And now that we are seeing Jesus free captives, heal the sick, the lame, cast out demons, we see Jesus now plundering the strong man's house. Jesus here is speaking of Himself. Jesus is saying, I, I, look, I'm stronger. I've tied up the strong man and now I am plundering His house. You're trying to explain this away. And that's why Jesus then goes on to say that there is no middle ground in following Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is why He says, whoever is not with Me is against Me, and whoever does not gather with Me scatters. You're either with Jesus or you're not. You can't root for two rival teams. You can't Root for Jesus and then wear the jersey of the world. But here's the good news. Here's the hope. Is that Jesus is a forgiving Savior. Jesus tells us every sin and blaspheme will be forgiven people, but the blaspheme against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Did you see that? Did you see the good news? Every sin and blaspheme will be forgiven. Even if you speak against the Son of Man. This is the good news of the Gospel. That Jesus dies for sinners and that when you come to Him, every sin will be forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, He will forgive all sin. We are told that He will throw your sin in the sea of forgetfulness. You will be forgiven. And on the day of judgment, you will be pronounced innocent because of what Christ has done for you. He who knew no sin became sin. Because of Christ's death, His burial and resurrection, when we put our trust in Him and profess Him as our Lord and Savior, all your sins are forgiven. I mean, this is the beauty of the Gospel. This is possible because there is more mercy and love in Christ than evil and sin in us. He will cleanse you from every sin when you come and confess. Now, some of you are kind of skeptical right now because you think that I'm glossing over a certain portion of that passage, right? Uh, but I'm not. I see it. This is a challenging few verses to wrestle through, isn't it? Max, you just got done saying that every sin and blaspheme can be forgiven. But you just read Jesus contradicting himself, right? Because he says that there is a sin that will be unforgivable. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if I call him a name, if I say something like he's lame, Am I somehow unforgivable? Am I somehow damned to hell? Not necessarily. I wouldn't suggest calling the Holy Spirit a name. That would just be irreverent. But just calling the Holy Spirit a name does not mean that you are unforgivable. You see, some people call this sin the unforgivable sin. And the right question to ask is, how can this be if Jesus says that He can forgive all sin? How can Jesus forgive all sin, yet not forgive one sin? Well, see, Jesus can't forgive the person who doesn't want to be forgiven. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean to call the Holy Spirit a name. It means a willful and explicit denial of Jesus' divinity. Let me say that again. The unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is an explicit and willful denial of Jesus' divinity. Look at the Pharisees blaspheme. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They blaspheme it by setting themselves against the works of Christ. 
They have an answer for everything, and so they explain away the miraculous nature of Christ, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What the Pharisees are doing and what we're seeing in this passage is the Pharisees are actively hardening their hearts against the works of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they tell the crowds that the Holy Spirit or that the works that Jesus does through the power of the Holy Spirit is actually Satan. This is a willful rejection. And so, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a willful rejection of the person who alone can bring repentance and faith. Now, we may not blaspheme the Spirit in the same way that the Pharisees did. I don't know many people who are going around saying that, well, Jesus' miracles are because of the Prince of Demons. But here's what I do know is that Satan loves to trick people and help them swing the pendulum from one end to the other. We may now hear things like, well, Jesus, he's not that bad of a guy. Jesus, is a, he's a pretty good guy, isn't he? He helped quite a few people. He had exemplary morals. I could follow that guy. He helped society. He left this world in a better place than when he came. That's, that's a man worth following. But, you know, those, those strange miracles, the, the working, people actually saying that he's a savior and can save people from hell, I, uh, I don't know. That sounds more like a fairy tale to me. It sounds more like a sham. You know, we've got pretty far in science, so we can kind of explain some of these scientific things away. We're pretty more advanced as a culture. and society, we've made quite a bit of progress, and, and, and that's kind of laughable, isn't it? So if you're here this morning, and this is you, hear me say this, as long as, you, as, long as you're alive, there's time to reconsider there's time to repent. Jesus is not a morally good teacher worth following. Just like Jesus is not Belzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus is the son of David, the king of kings. So repent now. Repent now before it's too late. Do not or stop actively hardening your heart against the merciful nature of Christ. Well, some of us may think through this and ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What are some indicators? In our second point, in verses 33 through 37, we see Jesus challenge the Pharisees that good fruit produces good speech. He says it right here, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say you love God and yet 
look no different from the world. You could tell if a tree is healthy by the fruit it produces. I remember being told a story of a man who lived out in the country. He said he had two apple trees. Both on the outside looked as healthy as possible until it came time for the apples to grow and one of the trees grew delicious, juicy apples. The other tree grew none, indicating that there was a serious problem of unhealth in that tree. Good fruit, Jesus is saying, produces good speech because out of the heart is what you speak. The Pharisees claim to know God, yet they miss His Son, Jesus. They say they love God, yet reject Him. On the outside, they dress the part. They know the language. They know all of the theological mumbo-jumbo to say to the widows, to those who are hurting, to the new people that come into their synagogues. But if you listen, if you listen closely to their speech, they blaspheme the clear works of God by attributing them to the prince of demons. They look on the outside spot, spotless, but their speech gives them away. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. The heart will reveal through your speech where your treasure lies. You love money? Guess what you'll talk about? You love the Packers? Guess what you'll talk about? You love things? Guess what your heart will talk about? You say you treasure Christ. Do you say that you treasure Christ? Do you say that you love your neighbor? How do you speak about them? How do you speak about Christ? How do you speak about King Jesus? With affection? With admiration? Like one person writing another person a love letter? What about your neighbor? Do you aim to speak highly and truthfully about them? Hey, look, we cannot be careless with our words. We cannot be careless with our words because God is like a stenographer. I mean, He's not like a stenographer. He is a stenographer. He is writing down every word and keeping record of it. All of your emails, all of your texts, all of your posts, your comments, your words, all of the things that you've said about Jesus carelessly, all of the times that you've gossiped or misrepresented a brother or sister in Christ, we cannot be careless with our words. Because on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. 
For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So here this morning, if you have not confessed and repented of your careless speech, then do it now. If there's somebody in this room that you've been careless to speak about or speak to after the service, you should make it your business to go and repent, to seek reconciliation. Because just like the Pharisees, we will be known by our fruit, and good fruit produces good speech. Because out of the treasure of your heart, your mouth will speak. And ironically, the Pharisees lacked so much self-awareness that they asked Jesus for a sign. Let's just briefly go through what we've just seen. Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. The Pharisees speak out and say it's by Beelzebul that Jesus casts out demons. Jesus then confronts them by blaspheming the Holy Spirit and tells them, out of your heart will come your speech. Good fruit produces right speech. And yet, they have the audacity and the ignorance to ask Jesus for another sign. We think you're doing these things by evil spirits, Jesus, so show us another one. The Pharisees ask, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So this is what we'll see in our Third point, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees, there is only one sign that you need. It's the sign of Jonah. And so, Jesus tells them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The prophets, the, the prophets just weren't afraid to really call it as it is. They would call the people adulterers. They would go so far at times to say that they would, the people of God would prostitute themselves out to false gods. And here Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're doing the same thing. You're committing adultery on God. You're prostituting yourself out to foreign gods. You're trading in the Creator to worship the creation. But because of the kind and merciful nature that Jesus has, He will still tell them there is one sign that you will receive or that you will see. It's the sign of Jonah. You remember Jonah? Maybe you don't know Jonah. Jonah was the racist prophet who, told, who was told by God to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites who were an evil, terrible nation. Jonah thought it was a terrible idea to go and proclaim the Gospel. Not only is Jonah a racist, he's also maybe one of the worst evangelists known to man. He thinks... It would be better for me to run away from God to go and proclaim good news to Nineveh. And so he gets on a boat. He tries to flee. 
God sends a great storm. Jonah tells the people, hey, look, throw me overboard. A.K.A., I know how I'll outsmart God. I'll just die in the storm. So, the people throw Jonah overboard and he gets swallowed by a great fish. And for three days and three nights, he lives in the belly of the fish until the fish vomits him on shore. Jesus is telling the people, the sign that you need, the only sign that you will receive is my death, burial, and resurrection. This is the only sign that you will need to see that I am the Messiah, the Son of David. The one who has come to establish an eternal kingdom. But notice the tragedy and difference that Jesus points out here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The evil and adulterous generation that has prostituted itself out to foreign gods will not repent. The sign that they will receive, they will reject. And we see this as they ask Pilate if they can set guards. They, we see this as they pay off the guards. They will reject the sign of Jonah. And because of that, Nineveh, who did repent in sackcloth and ashes, and the queen of the south who went out of her way to seek the wisdom of Solomon and who repented and worshipped God, they will rise up and judge them. The religious leaders are putting more hope in their affiliation with God rather than trusting God. They couldn't believe how the Messiah, the Son of David, could stoop so low to be the friend of sinners. And until he would perform a great and grand sign, they would not give up all they had to follow Jesus. How often, let's, let's just be as transparent here as possible, how often can it be said of those who attend church, We treat church more like an affiliation. More like a country club than anything else. To go there and maybe receive an inspiring message or to be moved by music. To go there to get a little bit more morally clean on the outside. To meet maybe some new people. It'll be good to improve on some morality. 
God doesn't want our affiliation. He doesn't care about our affiliation. He wants our worship. He wants our obedience. He wants us to bow our knees to Him as Lord and Savior through the only sign that we need. That Christ has risen. He's not looking for affiliation. He's looking for worship. And this is what Jesus is challenging the Pharisees on. They are trusting more that they are sons of Abraham than that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in our, first, or in our fourth point, in verses 43-45, through 45, Jesus warns the Pharisees and the crowds that there is no neutral ground. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. As demons are being casted out, and houses that were once destroyed, grimy, dirty, moldy, the furniture has been flipped over and out of place, you would think that nobody's lived here for centuries. As it's being cleaned, as, it's, as the furniture is being pushed back into place, the evil spirit is left on the outside it looks like it's being put back together but the inside it's void and as the evil spirit is done being flustered it thinks to itself well i've got nowhere else to go i might as well just go back and as it goes back it thinks to itself hey somebody's made a nice looking place for me let me go and grab seven other spirits and we can have a little evil spirit party together. Which then leaves the house in even more chaos and more turmoil than when it started. After seeing the signs and miracles, after hearing the proclamation of the kingdom of God, Jesus has been putting the house in order. But the religious leaders and Israel's neutrality toward Jesus will only end up worse if they do not repent and trust in Him. And the same is with you if you are here today and neutral toward Jesus. After seeing and hearing the words of Jesus, Don't remain neutral to Him. Submit your life and turn to Him. He will forgive you if you confess your sin, but there is no neutral ground to stand on. This is what Jesus is challenging the Pharisees about, their neutrality toward Him. Jesus longs for 
the people to see Him as their King. Jesus longs for you to see Him as King. And so as we leave here today, please let Christ's challenge to the Pharisees challenge us. Let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's leave here examining our hearts and minds, being challenged to see Christ as the only King, to be challenged in speaking good fruit, to be challenged in being content with the only sign we need, that Christ has died and risen, to be challenged by not being neutral. May the challenges of Christ this morning not offend us, but lead us to greater worship of Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word which challenges us. We thank You for Jesus' challenges to the Pharisees. Would You help challenge us this morning? And would You help us rest in Your grace? Amen.